Welcome to DAO Talks, a bunch of well talks with builders that have things to say about DAOs, Web3, life, and other things. Today, I'm talking to Will Ruddick. Will is the founder of Grassroots Economics. In his past life, he was looking for pentaquarks in a way to build warp drive. He has been living in Kenya for almost 15 years. We'll be talking about his journey through physics, activism, and economics, and his quest to know how far you can push technology to empower people. And while many people follow Elon Musk to see if Tesla keeps on accepting Bitcoin or not, Will has built a user base of over 50,000 Kenyans that use blockchain technology on USSD phones to pay for water, education, and food. But first, yet again, I need to make an obligatory statement. The information in this podcast is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. It is not intended to be and does not constitute financial advice, investment advice, trading advice, or any other advice. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or other platforms, consider heading over to talks.dalhas.com. will be talks.dalhas.com. You can get, well, the exact same podcast that you're listening to here, plus links to topics, sites, and people that pop up in it. And more talks, obviously. Let's jump right in. All right. Hey, Will. Good morning. Hey, Tim. Hey, Where are you? I'm in Kilifi, Kenya, uh, just a little bit north of Mombasa, next to the Indian Ocean. And yeah, this is the view out my window here. It's a nice, nice, nice day right now. Yeah. When I look at this, um, you know, it's, uh, and I remember when we talked early uh, last year, um, I love this contrast thinking about that we're going to have a conversation about protocols and blockchains and global finance and you're sitting in looks like in the middle of the bush is this are you working from home or is yeah, this is us both yeah yeah home office we, we kind of got rid of having any sort of central office with covid and and whatnot and, and most of our team is in the field or developers around kenya and some around the world and stuff so yeah 
And and this is not the same house that you're in when we first talked, right? You had to change places? No, I had to move. So this is another place where I'm just renting. And the hope is, yeah, maybe within a year, we'll have some sort of uh, like a community center that we actually build up and end up moving there. And um, so that's the plan. Yeah. I obviously know some of the backstory, but how did you end up in Kenya? Like, what's the... Well, yeah. where are you from originally anyway? So what did you start at the beginning? Yeah, I'm from California, Santa Cruz, and uh, I grew up very sort of, you know, activist prone. I mean, with my parents and extended family, we're all very much sort of like alternative thinkers in some ways. I mean, a bit, a lot of new age stuff going on back then and things. And um, I, uh, yeah, I got pushed a lot into this sort of like alternative transcendental type communities and in different types of groups. And at the same time, there was this thread of activism of like, what are they actually doing rather than sort of waiting for the next transition to the next dimension or the next incarnation or whatever it was. And so I, I felt like that was a big, strong dichotomy in my life of this sort of spirituality of inner growth and, you know, fixing yourself and, and self-betterment versus like, you know, there's, there's people that you can actually like be teaching and helping or, uh, or building stuff together and that sort of thing. So um, eventually after doing grad school in physics and then getting into economics. Instead did you, of, where was grad school? I, I did my, all my research at the Stanford Linear Accelerator through uh, the CU Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. So it was, it was all high energy physics focused on pentaquarks particle accelerators like trying to mash together five different quarks together to find these like exotic states that could exist and and you know again this to me that was a, again like this kind of push for me into this sort of transcendental realm like can we let's invent warp drive let's work on all these kind of like what you know how can we push tech you started uh, working on the warp drive well i mean that was sort of the the emphasis uh, <laughs> you know, in working on particle accelerators and things like this was just you know antimatter collisions like we had the the voice from the woman of the original star trek enterprise every time the matter antimatter containment field went down she would she would pop on you know it is the recording says the matter antimatter containment field has just shut down you know we all so it was like that world of like yeah we can solve all these problems with technology and here we are like we're building these eyes into the the smallest reaches we can find the building blocks of, of matter itself and time and um so I, I loved it from that point of view and it, to me it was very much also like part of this sort of transcendental uh vibe and uh and so just kind of going back and forth into you know tech and spirituality versus wanting to also like be part of this world and plant a tree and and help kids grow up and you know that that sort of thing and poverty has also been a big thing in my life and it just you know like being upset at how the world was i used to you know people used to ask me why i went into physics there is that comes next but just as a comment um I uh, I remember the time when it's like 2008. We you know lived in the Bay Area as well. I was like did a startup there, right? And I had lived in Chile for many years, and I was really um, I, I was always on my bucket list. I go to Silicon Valley, like raise money on a backpack kind of thing. And we lived you know for a while like in Market Street and in San Francisco, and then um, 
Later, when my first son was born, we actually moved. Um, we stayed some months in, in Foster City. However, we also lived for like half a year in Santa Cruz. Okay, and what I always enjoyed very much from Santa Cruz was, you know, would drive around in this shitty old, like used. We had a car from a used car rental, and. I would be in meetings all day and running around and then, um, you know, come back to Santa Cruz. He would get out of the car and some dude would roll by on a skateboard, smoking a joint. And uh, my wife would come back from some yoga session. And it was always this contrast that you also putting up with this between like, you know, this tech and crazy VC and startup world um, uh, compared to more, which I think is something in Santa Cruz, right? With this more spiritual and a lot of people that, you know, you're just 50 miles away kind of from the valley, but it's already a different culture and mindset and just could really relate to it. And um, it'll go from there, just thinking on how um, it, you got into this particle physics and so on. So I deeply talking about, I, I found this, you know, this kind of this characteristics of this area. So yeah. uh, I had no clue you're actually coming from there. Yeah. I, I feel like that is kind of like Silicon Valley. I mean, like first job I had, I, I was working on, programming compilers for Borland and it was like they had built this massive ca campus there's a river going through the middle of the building there was like five restaurants underneath it there was a basketball court so you know everything you could imagine and uh, it was this guy I think it's Philippe Kahn and, and he you know the stock went from like $80 a share down to three I think something like that during the time I was there and it was like I was a kid I was a I think I was 16 when I started there. I had three computers, big office. I was doing, um, I, I was really getting into also the early sort of like uh, um, FTP kind of uh, Pirate Bay-ish kind of stuff. And I remember that's actually probably where I first got into like actually trying to reward people in terms of bandwidth based on their uploads, you know? Um, but anyways, it was just, yeah, there was all this like wealth uh, in that area and a lot of people thinking in different ways and you know spiritual leaders coming and going and uh, and yeah they ended up in a way sort of like there there's this you know like the we used to call it when we say the donut economics before Kate Ratworth it was it was the idea that you were rich and sweet but you had a hole in you you know you weren't actually part of a real community you weren't it was all just kind of superficial in other words and and so f always feeling that always i mean even as a kid like walking down my road in the suburb of santa cruz as a kid and just seeing this blue glow coming from every household all the way down the street of people watching whatever it was with their little lawns and their and their couches and it was just you know it, it seemed like it wasn't a real world it was just some sort of a made-up fantasy that uh couldn't possibly continue or exist and anyways um i eventually joined the peace corps um and uh and that was sort of my out i was just i was so happy and excited that um i was basically escaping the 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 us that was the feeling it was just like wow i i don't have to accept this reality anymore and and here of course being thrust into another reality that's not always great either but uh for some reason, it was just so liberating, just like, oh, my God, you know, like I, you're going to pay me to go and learn another language and learn a whole new life. And all this stuff that I've been studying, you know, the community currency stuff for even 10 years before that, like 
it's it's probably going to be way more useful there than it ever had been in the U.S. You know, so I was just so excited. I was like, oh, this is it. You know, I sold everything. I, I had no intention of ever coming back. When so yeah, I, I think just you know relating to what you just said with the yeah, it's a different reality and we talked about this, it's not about if it's better or worse and they all have their problems right but I think um, what at least resonates with me here is um, you get a little bit rid of this artificiality right like this is the thing so while realities can be different good or bad but this artificiality is always this thing that you know you bump into and I bump into that as well and it is has in, in wealthy countries now, as being in Austria, as I said, has always a little bit, it's more authentic, but it's it, it, it has this, artific, it's all somewhat artificial and strange, but it's very strong in the US. I always have that, like, it's, I feel like driving through a movie and it's all cardboards and it's all, you know, a little yeah. bit of this. What, so two things, what year was that with the Peace Corps? Um, and you said, yeah, then you had already been in community currency. So you how, how do you get to community currencies and how, how, do, how do the yeah. dots connect there? Yeah. I, I just on that surrealness before I answer that, it was just the idea that like the, the fear of a lot of people in the US, I like, you know, I, I went through a lot of people in that sort of realm saying California is going to fall into the ocean or blah, blah, blah. You know, all these like doomsdayers constantly. Honestly, I was around a lot of that. And, um, or, or one of, you know, a lot of, Close people I know have bunkers with guns in them, like and in that sort of mentality all the time, and they're worried about lawlessness and all this stuff. And then you come out and you, you're in a village he, out here, and people are actually just okay. You know, they don't have any of that, no infrastructure, nothing, and they're fine. You know, I mean, okay, and there's problems, of course, but I just there is actually a relief that you know, like we're gonna be okay, like even. If, even if, you know, like all the petrol stopped in the U.S. tomorrow and yada, yada. I mean, yeah, of course it'd be chaos. And of course we love love that in every movie we ever see in the U.S. comes out, right? It's just, you know, Armageddon is like our theme, I feel like, in the U.S. Um, and yet here's a society that like is post-apocalyptic almost in some ways, you know? Um, so anyways, I, uh, to your question... I, to me, that was just, you know, so I, as a physicist, I had a friend who was starting to do like analysis, like Fourier transforms of stock data and Forex data. And I was just like, oh, this is, this is more interesting than what I'm doing. Right I actually, I found out that pentaquarks don't exist. That was my thesis. It was a null hypothesis. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> what do I do now? And I, I, I was just kind of disillusioned. And here I had all these servers at my fingertips that I could do a lot of simulation on. So I started doing economic simulations and I just fell in love with that. I did a little, I, there's a YouTube series called the village market simulator series. And um, that shows some of the, some of that stuff, but uh, I just really enjoyed that. The, I like simulating stuff anyways, just, you know, as a, as a thought process of just a way of what do I understand? You know, what, how does an economy work and what are the assumptions we put in and the assumptions we put into those simulations they're human rules generally right like versus in the in physics those are sort of like you know the the cosmological constants and things like that we don't get to change those and uh and so that it, all of a sudden it was like fun and it was like oh i'm i'm using my you know tech background and my math and physics to look at things that is actually important you know to people right now in the world and uh 
And then there was little knobs and triggers on that, right? So like just changing how money gets issued, that was it. That was, you know, so when I started getting to Forex, uh, you know, I went from that into starting, eventually a friend of mine gave me this book by Bernard Leotard, this, you know, The Future of Money. And he was describing all these little economic experiments that have, the history of money is a bunch of small economic experiments. And, um, and so I just was like, oh, okay, you know, that, that that's what, that's the problem. Like, I just look, so everything to me kind of looked like this uh, nail and the hammer was, um, you know, reinventing economics, so, um, you know, making it from the ground up, enabling people to issue credit. That was a huge, huge aspects um, of all the reading and all the simulations. Everything I did was, you know, if you empower people to issue their own credit, what's possible? How could that change the system? And what would that look like? And, uh, and there's lots of, you know, lots of little examples of people trying to do things like this. So I studied a lot with uh, Berkshires in Massachusetts with Susan Witt and lots of these different examples, uh, looking at what was happening in Bancos Palmas in Brazil, um, in Switzerland. There's a whole bunch of groups that are called the uh, SEL, like Solidarity Economy Locale, and LETS, which is local exchange trading systems. Um, so there's there was a there was a, a rich and there a lot of those groups were starting to go digital as well. And this was like 2000 when I left the U.S. I was in Chicago when Obama was elected because I was part, like helping with the campaign. And then when he was actually inaugurated, I was in Kenya. So it was like that span. I think within two weeks after his election, I was there. So I guess that was 2008. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, like even the years kind of leading up to that, I mean, with coin around 2007, 2008. Um, so there was a lot of, lot, it was a juicy time. Everything was kind of going on. And to me, I was like, I get to escape all of this insanity and try to figure it out from the bottom, like the grassroots, like back to home in a way, you know, like let's go back home. So to me, Kenya always felt like coming back home even as like a species to me, it was like, okay, what are we doing again? Like why, maybe let's reboot a little bit and rethink this. And, um, and all of these things, you know, we started with paper vouchers, right? We went in, I went into a community, I talked with all the elders and different community groups and businesses. And we we're just like, okay, here's how we could print some vouchers for the goods and services of this community. Um, how would that work? And we just did a whole bunch of workshops with everybody in the community. I we had started with like seventy five businesses. That was called Ecopesa, um, and uh, and yeah, it was just it was just really just joyful and fun and empowering and uh, and just to watch communities kind of go through that thinking process of saying, you know, what is money? I they've they a lot of there's been a lot of like memory wipe in a way of you know what even existed here before the British came and started taxing people in a money that they couldn't make um, and subjugating them and controlling them and then, you know, handing that system over to the, the newly formed Kenyan government who just kept doing the same thing. Um, so it, it, it is like, there definitely, uh, it's a strange concept for most people to say, um, can I create a currency or can I create a voucher or a token? And what does that mean? And how would that circulate? Would it be a currency? Would it just be a voucher back and forth? And yeah, anyway, let me pause. Oh, very interesting. So because you just, you know, you left the US when? I guess 2008, I think. So um, 
describing the following, um, talk a bit about, first of all, when did you hear first about? I remember it. I was living in like a, a basement of a friend's house. Uh, this was, um, and I, I want to say it was those years before that. I, I mean, I want to say like 2007. Um, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't, I, I was basically in like all the people that I knew that were into community currencies were just sort of aghast of it. And in just on principle, it was like, you know, this is not how money should be issued, right? Like the issuance model itself, um, the way that it enriched, you know, within one year, I think the, the, the first miners minted millions of Bitcoin, right? And in totally enriched themselves. And this whole thing of like, I'm going to create a token, I'm going to claim to people it's valuable, it's maybe going to be more valuable in the future. I've got a whole supply of them, of course. And, um, and then I'm going to try to pump these as much as I possibly can. And there's no real kind of commitments or guarantees. Like the way we like to think about money in terms of the credit theory of money is that money's an agreement. You know, it's not meant to be a commodity that you hoard, right? That's a commodity. That's like Donald Duck sitting on his pile of coins kind of thing. Like these are going to be valuable forever. And even if I'm like, I'm a vampire and I'm going to wake up in 10,000 years, I'm still going to be rich. Like that's the kind of motivation around commodity money, you know? And so that, so Bitcoin was created with sort of a commodity money uh, persona. Um, I mean, really it's mostly just a collectible. What's interesting around it though, is that it is useful for security within the network that it does have its uses. And so to me, the concept of a gas token now, you know, a token that's going to be used for access to the network. Of course, in Bitcoin, all you can do with Bitcoin is trade Bitcoin. It's not like, you know, Ethereum, you can do all kinds of other stuff and yada, yada. But um, it is that if we're going to create ledger services, and so this is, there's been a big transition from like saying, okay, we were doing these paper vouchers, right? And how do we transition into a digital system? Because printing, security printing paper vouchers is is not fun for many reasons it's it, you know it's expensive vaulting and transportation and security around them you know it's That's what i want to go into so if, if i look at the timeline i try to connect this in my head right like you heard about i imagine because just because of your interest obviously you heard about it early i understand your thoughts around it and then you know you went to kenya and you started with community currencies on paper. And what I'm now interested in is there's this journey, right? So you're experimenting on paper and you see the this entire blockchain world emerge and you must have yeah. looked at it in parallel for many years, right? Like it's there. Yeah, we had groups, there was a group called Pika Pay, I remember that was try, like, trying to do a Bitcoin beach thing here. And they were like, okay, we're gonna, you know, we want these women in the villages to be using our app and trading 0 0.00001 Bitcoin for their tomatoes. And it was just, again, it was like, why would they use your fiat, your foreign currency? You know, there was that on principle, but also just practically, it was just like, I, you know, I'm sure Bitcoin Beach has solved this problem in El Salvador, but still um, the idea of subjugating people with a foreign not endogenous, you know, non-local currency is just, you know, it's the history of imperialism. That that was the method, and and to me, it was just unthinkable to sort of addict people into that world. Like, 
why give these these first guys who minted millions of bitcoins that much power over the people over the lives of people in a village in Kenya you know how does that work and so centralization of power is a, is a really core concept and I, I I don't see a lot of people in like tokenomics talking about that enough so exactly and so at what point do you obviously like I see this so you see this experience of Bitcoin and you're doing the paper vouchers and maybe talk about this a little bit more like what you learned there and what worked and what didn't work but at some point obviously you looked at blockchain technology and you go like, oh, now we're going to do it on the blockchain, right? Yeah. This is not new to you. So you've seen this for many years. So how was the experience of, you know, in terms of what worked and what didn't work on paper vouchers? And at what point you actually went, okay, now we're going to try to go on the blockchain. Like what, what triggered it? What technology or what state of mind, what thoughts triggered yeah. to go, okay, you know, wake up one day and go like, now is the moment, like, because there's a beginning, right? Sure. Somewhere. Yeah. I, I think 2015, we, I, we started doing our first like USSD interface. So like making an interface that could be used for people without internet at all. So anyone with phone access, you know, these little feature phones um, could, could access a database that was just a SQL database back then. Um, and I think eventually moved to Postgres. And, um, and so that was, you know, at least we didn't have to print those vouchers, but then it created this in some ways worse centralization kind of problem is that if we shut down our server, all these people's history would be wiped completely. And so, yeah, we can create backups of it. We can do all this stuff. And it was also in terms of the bottleneck of the interface itself too. So if you, if you only allow people to access the system through your wallet, you know, your USSD system, if there's no other options whatsoever, again, another like super bottleneck. So in, in terms of thinking towards, so I started a, a foundation here called Grassroots Economics. And the whole idea was how do we create, you know, economic commons, local infrastructure? Like how do we actually help communities define their instruments, their, their financial instruments, use them, you know, let them flow, different types of financial instruments, not just currencies even. And um, what does the infrastructure of that look like such that it's sustainable, um, that it's, it can be sensor proof, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the whole blockchain and decentralized infrastructure and, and even peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure, that's always been super exciting to me. I mean, even going back to when we were doing uh, early BitTorrent and things like this. And I, I was even a, a BBS guy even before the internet got started. And so like the whole idea of having networks of people that are sharing information and creating decentralized architecture, that was always kind of the vision and the, the dream and, you know, being sensor resistant and creating, creating living networks that were uh, sort of, you know, the, the decentralized governance as well like the so the so having that in mind that was always the idea and then at first real like foray into blockchain was there was a group that that sponsored us um called bankor in in uh, out of israel that sponsored us to to try to move our ussd front end get it off of the database and put it onto this early poa chain and it was called poa the poa that was like the first one of the first um of those types of chains and and that was just and and in that case it was just a bunch of chosen validators from this group uh, this guy igor was was started he's the guy also who started uh, eventually xdai 
And, uh, and so, it, you know, it was basically a trusted network that we said, okay, great. This network is, is bigger than us. It's more secure than us. You know, why don't we use this ledger for this? And they gave us as many POA tokens as we needed. They just, you know, they would just make them. They, it costed almost nothing in terms of these POA. But uh, it, there was a there's a bit more to it in terms of the blockchain side, but they're also on the technology side. The Bancor guys, they, you know, Al Herzog had developed this this uh, bonding curves, right? So ways of connecting and creating kind of market incentives for connecting two different vouchers or currencies together or tokens. Yeah. And um, and so that was really interesting and exciting, and I was you know like the math behind it again, the tech side and, and just like, oh, cool, you know, like we can we can take, you know, this village token and we can create a market that connects it to this village token and it can it can have, you know, continuous liquidity, you know, all this all these kind of functions that we that eventually turned into, um, you know, like Uniswap came out and eventually like that's become DeFi now, basically. Bancor still around, but like they they focused on everyone had to connect to their network token, right? And then Uniswap came out and said, now you can make any pair that you want. Um, and so that that was sort of, it wasn't the end of Bancor, but it definitely, uh, it, I mean, I, I feel like Bancor kind of gave birth to decentralized finance in the, in the crypto space. Um, they were sort of the first to really push bonding curves at all. And that's the heart of uh, a, a lot of this decentralized finance stuff. I, you know, today, so we actually, we, so by that time, you know, 2018 it was, we had a, a good 11 currencies out there on paper. We're just moving some of them into the into the USSD stuff. And then by the end of 2018, I think we had them all with their own token on a blockchain with a front end. And all of them could connect through a common token we called Sarafu, which we just made up, as the network token between them. And so that was the beginning of Sarafu. I, although we had used Sarafu on the paper vouchers as well. So Sarafu means currency. And so Sarafu, Sarafu network is kind of what, what started back then. And, um, and, and they were connected to each other such that each village could trade with each other. But they could convert between their currencies. Each person would just hold their own currency. They wouldn't hold multiple currencies. And so if someone sent you their currency, it would automatically convert through these bonding curves to yours. And it would it would adjust the prices based on how much relative reserve they had with each other. So that it was a really interesting um, experiment. For the most part, though, it was it was it was a bit confusing for people. Um, the exchange rates, I mean, like the interface around the USSD, and it's like you send me five tims, and I end up with six wills, and they're like okay, why, what's going on here? You know, like it wasn't, you know, like, so that was confusing. Eventually um, our, our thinking around that just went into what we call like static rate pools where like, you know, the community can just set a one-to-one -one ratio to each other that's static. So it's not continuous liquidity. And eventually it runs out if you go too far on one side, which is fine. So it has to go back in the other side. So actually a lot of the, a lot of the automated functions of blockchain, some like, automated bidding and auctions and two-sided markets we've actually found that we don't need a lot of that stuff we we don't necessarily need it pre-programmed we didn't you know what i mean like we can actually a lot of those functions like they're choices they, they exist they're fine but we don't need them to be hard-coded into people's lives necessarily you know and so so this is this has been a, a real blowback we've had so we've moved blockchains you know we're 
we're sort of in our third move right now of blockchains. And finally, we've just basically said, we don't need anyone else's blockchain. We can just make community blockchains and we can make them how we want to. So that's where we are right now. And it feels, it feels really nice. It's just like, okay, you know, we can cut out all the, this sort of automated bidding kind of concepts where people can jump the queue on their transactions if they pay more gas and things like that. Like there's, there's a lot of choices that can be made. And also to have like small little mesh network blockchains, you know, where like you've got a server sitting there in the village and, um, and it is your blockchain and you can connect out to others as well. Um, you know, totally off grid systems as well. So that's, I, f I feel better. Yeah. So when going to 2018, we, you know, um, or, or give me this in the dates again, when you knew the paper vouchers to like centralized systems and just an SQL database. Um, yeah. How many villages and how many users were there and what was then transactions? And then, you know, yeah. when we started moving, I think it was on Banker, right, to run it on blockchain. And, you know, where is it today? Like, where? What? Um, I think by the like 2019, the beginning of 2019, like, or even to, let's say the end of 2019, something like a few thousand, four, six, four to six thousand ish users on the system. And that was like 11 different currencies. And um, that was some rural villages and, and some urban areas as well. So Mombasa and Nairobi. And, um, and it was, you know, I would say uh, around maybe like uh, in a typical day, something like 20 to 50 transactions or something like this throughout that network. Um, so, so not huge. Um, and then, yeah, then at the end of uh, 2019, I, I would say we were around there. And that's when a few things happened. Like one, we wanted to switch wallets um, so we had a USSD interface, but the way we had done it with Bancor is that that was hitting an API for their wallet, which was closed source. And it had a lot of problems back then. And so basically when someone registered with us, we actually had someone physically on a computer going to the Bancor, you know, wallet and creating, you know, a wallet ID and writing down all the 12 words and all this kind of stuff. And it was horrible. And I... It was just, it was, in, and we just wanted to say, look, we can make an Ethereum wallet like ourselves. Like it's not, it's not that hard. Right. And they were just like breach of terms. We're not funding you guys anymore. And they literally just cut us off cold Turkey. They were just like, nope, you're out, you know? And, and so understood. Um, and so basically we went from using their system um, at the end of yeah 2019. So to, like basically from the first, I remember this, the end of the year, it was just like, they were just like, you're out, Merry Christmas. And and it was hard. It was, it was, it's like being kicked out of your house. Eh? It was a little bit like that. And, and it was, you know, a lesson learned, like why were we using this centralized closed source, you know, API tool wallet from a, a, a tech conglomerate in Israel? Like why on earth do that? You know? So yeah, stupid in a sense. And I guess a lot of the decentralized hype around blockchain, like you don't really necessarily realize how centralized things really are quite often. And, uh, and so that was intense. That was just super intense. And, and so that was, you know, kind of once bitten, twice shy. We, there was a, there was a company that came in after this and said, Hey, you can use our system. Uh, they were called Sempo. And, uh, and 
and we were like, okay, great. You know, we'll, you know, it was an open source system. We're going to copy it onto our, our server. And, uh, and then what happened was they transitioned. We moved all of our users over to their system. And then they said, no, we're not going to give you the server. It's our, they're our users now. We're like, oh God, no. And so that took a while to get back out of as well. So that was like the beginning of 20, um, 2020. And then we started working with the Red Cross. And at that time we had this basically like limping system. We only had one token at that point. We, we migrated everything into Serafu. So there's only one token then. And we lost all ability to make new tokens on the system that we basically had this. And we luckily got like our first kind of well not our first but like our first sort of senior dev to come in at that point and he said okay well we can redesign this whole thing and he's he's one of these guys who literally can write his own chips and you know doesn't own a phone he's amazing and so we spent the next two years till today rewriting everything from scratch totally open source um and during that time period we went from 4,000 users to 60,000 users on one single token. Oh. And, and it was done in a way where it was, it was airdropped out as well. So anyone who registered on the system would automatically get 50. So totally different than the community currency model that we had started with, right? And what would happen, like the success kind of points were when a community would take it as if they had issued it and own it. And, and back it sort, sort of like you would hope people did with your Bitcoin or your whatever token, you know, so we in some ways we have played out internally what a lot of community, a lot of token groups have done is they, they issue a token, they give it out to a bunch of people, they hope people use it as a currency, right? And, uh, and like Red Cross would come in there and support those community groups. So there would be like there's an incentive as well with the Red Cross and humanitarian sector around like, oh, great, you know, and the, um, one of the things that was good about that period was just just developing metrics. And this is with spreadsheets, you know, downloaded from transaction data, basically, you know, just showing the different volumes and trade and analyzing that. So we had a bunch of like randomized control trials. There's a whole bunch of academics who came on and did a bunch of research papers and just showed yeah, this, you know, the circulation is helping in, in these areas. Whether or not your token model is good or not, we don't like that. But just giving people a medium of exchange, period, full stop, was better than not having one, you know, and we could show that happening. And, and that was like, you know, just opposed to like cash transfer programs. So when you dump cash on people, yeah, they have a medium of exchange for like a week at most, and then it's all in Nairobi, right? So versus giving one that they have, you know, locally that can circulate. Now, I, what we're trying desperately to do right now, and we're literally like a few weeks away from launching our new software is now give communities back that power, right? Like let them make, it's their token. We're not trying to dump Sarafu on everyone. We'll still, we basically Sarafu for us will be our token that will pay for communities to create their tokens, right? So if a community wants to create their token, we're still giving out Serafu. We're still a nonprofit. That's still it. But we'll accept those back for all of our services. So when we go out and do trainings, we do you know, to make it sustainable for ourselves. So if a community wants to create their token, we'll still have Serafu there. As, so that's our service token, basically. And uh, and then, it, you know, even having a Telegram bot and a web app. So like, you know, someone in India can create theirs. And, you know, what does that mean exactly in terms of legal structure? That's been a big progression for us too of like going from 
this initial concept of, you know, we, a community group, are going to issue a bunch of tokens against our goods and services to something like Serafu, which is this kind of like airdropped thing, you know, backed by our services versus kind of back to their original legal structure of saying, well, you know, can a community group create membership and have a common instrument and legal structures around that? So that's been a big thing as well. What, well, can you talk about this? Because the, now we add the token and this was, you know, something that, you know, not being an economist and just not having the insight and experience with it that you have and what seems totally natural to you, I see this every time we talk, to a lot of people, it's really hard to understand. And when you take this example of Bitcoin that you brought earlier, where you said, yeah, you know, it's being mined. There's a bunch of people that own a lot of these tokens, got them really cheap. And that's, the, you know, it's, it's decentralized tech, but centralized power and wealth in the end again, right? Um, why is it such a game changer that a village, when you look at it, can issue its own token? What happens there? Because it took me a while to understand what actually happens in simple economic terms. Why is this so important? Like, what, what is happening there at the village before they have a token? And what happens when you suddenly introduce a token? Because I think a lot of people... Well, I mean, historically, that is what happened over and over. Like, you know, foreign powers would come in and introduce a token. Right. And so like the British would come in and tell everyone, you got to pay taxes with this token that we made. And yeah, those were metal tokens back then. Right. And um, and then they use that power to subjugate people. And, you know, even before that, you know, things like cowrie shells and, you know, so like tokenizing reciprocity within communities is like as old as we have history. So ledgers themselves, you know, just recording or tally sticks, they're freaking amazing. We used to have just simple little systems where you notch a stick, split it in half. You get this as a recording. I get this as a recording, right? When you pay your debt, we bring it back together. And, and it's cryptographic because the, the grain on the wood um, matches. Like uh, Chris Cook is super in, uh, expert on this stuff and just amazing has been helping us with like uh, redesigning some of these economic commons infrastructure. Um, so, so there's this long history of that. And I think we've just totally, we've, we've grown up in this little tiny bubble of human history where we have no relationship whatsoever, at least until Bitcoin started for most people of some dudes creating a currency or a, a token, right? Like we just, you've heard about the yen and the euro and the rupee and the, you know, but like, actual people issuing credit i mean technically this is what banks do as well they're issuing money on our behalf right it's not i mean I, most people are very confused about how even the us dollar gets put into circulation so yeah we I, most people have this very very limited view of you know what money is they you know it's that thing you pay rent with and you get it for doing some work that's it that's and um yeah. So, so when, when you go into the specific, like, take one of the villages, you can name it or make it an example you work with yeah. that, you know, this is what it looked like. And this was the problem people had before you showed up with uh -huh. the Serafo token or even the vouchers. But what was the situation day to day for a mother with two kids or um, eight kids or, you know, the guy selling water? And what was the situation on the ground for them? And what was the problem? And how does the token like this, you know, instead of having fiat currency, how, what changes? Like, I mean, just before and after in a real setting yeah. that people can imagine. Well, I, I think with the introduction, so basically here you have a village 
it depends on how far back we want to go, but like the, you, you've got a village that has some sort of form of reciprocity within it, right? Either it's, it might be controlled by the chief and his gourd and his calabash and might be, there's all kinds of different methods people had to a system where you're only even allowed to, or you only think that you can't get services from people. They can't help you. You can't do services for people or offer them anything unless you've got this foreign piece of this token, you know, the shilling. And so the breakdown of kind of society that's now dependent on this token for their reciprocity. So it's, it's, it's if you took like mitochondria out of your, your body or something like this, like it, there was a missing element, right. For human society and it causes breakdown. So when uh, let's say the human, like, so this family that's living there with four kids and, you know, they've got these maize that they're growing this and they've got a well. And um, during rich times when there's harvest and or they were able to sell a lot, they have money to take their kids to school. They have money to take their kids to the hair salon. Right. And those hair salon guys, you know, can come back and buy some of their corn and, and right. You can end up with those flows. Right. But then there's a whole bunch of this like imported stuff if it, you know like sugar coming in and all this kind of stuff right and all that money just kind of ends up leaking out or there's remittances being paid off to other family members or there's an emergency or anything like that so all the money that came into that community it's like this leaking bucket it just starts coming out right and so we've replaced old reciprocal systems that were basically sustainable with these kind of leaky bucket economies right where we would dump some foreign currency in and eventually just runs out and so what you would end up with in a in typical economies is just this kind of, you know, sustainability for a little while and then a crash. And I did a lot of like surveys and economic mapping of like seasonality. And you can really see like, there's some periods where, you know, like January, even right now, where there was maybe a lot of spending in December and a complete crash in January, people have to send their kids to school and all this, you know, fees kind of pop up and the economy just stops like literally like it waits until the next harvest season will be like in march april um and then it'll start picking up again so you end up with this kind of like jerky system that's brittle it's not resilient it's not alive it's it's basically like a a dead lurching thing it's like death rose you know something like what comes to my mind in the image is a little bit like uh, a machine that has all the parts right because people still provide services they still have water right the teacher is still teaching However, you're missing the lubricant, so nothing is running. Like it's in theory, the machine is there; it should be running, but right. it's the fiat yeah. foreign currency that's missing that allows people to go. Oh, I want to send my kids to school, and you know the school goes, "Yeah, you need money. I don't have any money. I have apples. Well, I uh, can't pay with apples, so your kids don't get any education. So, is it? Am I thinking about this the right way? That's totally it. And and the trick was, and still is to confuse people and to tell them that money is not about trust, to tell them that money is a thing you need, a medium of exchange is a thing you need and only we can provide it. It's the centralization of power, right? Centralization of who gets to issue currency. And if you talk to the Bitcoin people, they'll be like, no one should ever issue any altcoins ever, you know? You're like, what, how, how did you come to that idea? You know, I mean, and it's sort of like intrinsic in people's in minds to say that, oh, no, we need some authority or we need, some, you know, there can be only one, yada, yada, all this stuff. And and the real trick in it, there's a really good analogy of there once it was called there once was a river. And it was like the British 
you know, came in and basically chopped off people's access to this river and you had to now get water from them and stuff like that. But really what they chopped off access to was us being able to trust each other, right? That's that's really it. So if, if we can come up with reciprocal systems of trust, you know, and to me, that was a piece of Bitcoin and a piece of the blockchain was like, oh, can we create trusted ledgers that aren't owned by Tim? Just Tim, you know, I mean, you seem trustworthy, Tim, but I don't want you to own all the ledgers in the world. Like, you know, so can we, you know, like you might strip and fall and unplug it one day and we lose everything. So can we come up with more resilient systems that we can trust more and can technology help with that? So there was this allure of, you know, blockchain helping us with with those things and um, and, and allowing people to establish trust. So to me, a ledger, you know, like going back to the technology of ledgers, like ancient times, cruciform tablets and whatnot it was people recording reciprocity you know amongst each other right having a ledger system right that even the chief you know with this calabash you know he's he could be the ledger for instance or whatever like that the the concept of ledgers has been with us as long as we have human history and so the idea of decentralized ledgers you know that are resilient they're not owned by just one person who can toss them away and that we can decide to choose to record credit Right. And give people the power to say, yeah, here's a, I'm going to create a credit against my tomatoes. I mean, look, businesses offer each other credit all the time. If I give you an invoice, let's say you pay me and I've got an invoice and I got to deliver you t- tomatoes and you're holding this invoice. You can bring it back to me. Right. And you say, give me the tomatoes. That's you've lent credit right there. There's credit of tomatoes. It has not been. That's credit. We always offer each other credit. It's a human instinct. Right. Like we trust each other. Trust is is a is a good thing. It's not bad, you know. And the idea of creating systems for gauging that trust and what happens when you break that trust, that's, that's all human stuff. That's what, that's what we build laws for. That's why we have elders and you know, town councils and all kinds of systems built around trust. Um, and so to me, there's this idea of like, okay, if, if trust is the key here and we want to give people a simple book, you know, a simple ledger to record that they trust, they trust that ledger, that sounded like blockchain, right? Basically, that sounded like the idea. And and that, in other words, then going back to the example, is giving, you know, putting oil back into the machine, right? Giving people ledgers and the ability to produce, you know, to issue credit, then allows people to trade without having the dependency on the currency. You're getting rid of the leaking bucket. You're putting them in their own bucket. Is that the yeah, way to th- not, not really... I mean, I like it, but not really, because it's it's the the trick is that they always had the water, they always had the lubricant. It's in them. That's the point. I feel like we totally kind of like we miss. And, and when we say like the British took away their their access to the water, no, no, you know they they took away their 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 uh, concept that they could trust each other. They they made dependency. They created dependency on purpose. Right. And that's what when, you know, I was talking to these guys, um, it's called Beach Token. And it's like they sound very, very wonderful. They've minted like 20 trillion tokens. They give it out to communities that do good work and they want those communities to now use it as a medium of exchange and then they'll buy it back off of them sometimes. And I'm like, dude, I I get it. I get you want to help the environment and everything like this, but please don't make people dependent on your river. You know, they already have one empower them you know like great like offer services to people do your thing make your token great 
but like don't make people subjugated and dependent on it and so a lot of these like very nice projects and and whatnot they always want to dump their tokens on communities and they might mean very well to it but to me it's it's one of those you know like the road to hell is paved in good intentions kind of thing where you're still creating centralization of power you're not really empowering people at all and you've you've drank in this kool-aid to say that that's okay the whole you know crypto space to me has drunk in a lot of kool-aid to say Oh yeah, we can mint as many tokens as we want. We don't ever have to have any guarantees. We just write a little flimsy white paper, right? We we pump the value of these tokens on secondary markets. You know, what's my Tron coin good for right now? Come on, Justin. You know, how, how is that okay? How how do we think that? And then we say, okay, let's let's create, you know, um, humanitarian versions of this. And like, you know, we we've just got a grant from UNICEF of ETH. It's like, okay, great. Um, you know, thank you. We'll take your tokens, but we won't lock people into your ecosystem for sure. You know, I mean, wonderful that we're using EVM right now in our Ethereum virtual machine. So these little tiny blockchains we're trying to produce and, and bridging across chains that, and I think a lot of the blockchain space knows that that's the future, like the Cosmos ecosystem. They know that it's not about centralization, right? That it's all about protocols to connect. And so that's, that's, you know, even like with the Bancor protocol, it was, a, you know, protocols to connect tokens together, for instance, the concept of protocol, you know, and mutual agreements into uh, unhierarchical organization, right? That's what a protocol is. If I agree to your protocol, it doesn't mean I'm in an organization with you. It just means we can communicate. We, we've chosen a way to communicate. And so to me, that's, that's kind of the beautiful evolution of Web3 is getting, getting rid of centralized tokenomics getting rid of centralized blockchain right and going into really just protocol space you know peer-to-peer -peer protocol and uh yeah like it just empowering people it's and and really identifying these situations where the the first you know five dudes who got the the harmony validator uh you know it's like they're making all this money they're able to rent seek essentially, you know, and so it's just identifying where that money is going and just being transparent about it and, and you know, taking, putting the Kool-Aid down for a minute and saying, okay, you know, what do we actually want? And um, very good. And is the, so do you foresee or hope that there's going to be a future with many, many thousands of different blockchains that are all interconnected? Is that what you hope that will happen? You believe it's going to happen? And then connecting to this, just to clarify that, so what are you running on today and where in this future that you see or want to build, what are the technology choices and the foreseeable futures that you have already taken? Right now, we're just running on our own open Ethereum nodes. And we just have a few you know, partners that are running those nodes as well. And we've made it so that no one's making any gas uh, money on it or anything like that. So it's just you know static rate. Right. So instead of having volatile gas fees and things like that, it's just a static rate for opcodes. Um, and in terms of electing those nodes, it's just a simple election, and, you know, open to different ideas. Um, you know, to me, the proof of stake stuff, it really just sounds like you sell governance. And that, that only works when you really believe there's a fair system. You know, you can't have fair auctions if the money is not fairly distributed. You know what I mean? Like there's there's no there's no fairness in, you know, so a lot of the systems that I see really focusing around proof of stake, for instance, I, I just see them as enriching those node operators again. And, um, 
and you know it just if i create a whole bunch of tokens for my blockchain and i say you know i'm going to give those to to people or they can buy them for me and then if you stake them i'll give you more it, again it's it's very ponzi-esque it's very you know uh, just trying to get people to buy off your position so so getting rid of that just basic services you know ledger services wonderful it's a basic service, just like you know farming is a service right there's lots of services we don't need volatile tokens for your tomato we don't need volatile tokens for block validation either there's no reason to have to hard code that if you really want that make it yourself you want to set up a node that does auctions it's up to you but don't you know we don't need for so we're using um open ethereum nodes right now i mean there's a, there's a few options around that that we're playing with um we'd like to you know get into the ibc the inner blockchain communication stuff with cosmos um there's a lot of cool stuff. I also really love uh, some of the stuff that Holochain is doing in terms of like real peer-to-peer -peer stuff. So what we found is as we were like about to migrate into a token called, I mean, a, a blockchain called Bloxburg run by universities, we had to set up our own nodes for testing anyways. And we got to the point where we we're about to migrate there and we found that like 20% of their nodes were not even active. And we're like, our blockchain's more stable than theirs. Why are we using it? And we had to ask them for gas to use it. So it's like, uh, wait, you know, like that, that doesn't make sense. Um, and and then it would, again, it was a situation where we're like, they would not let us be a validator node because we're not a university. And so we were looking around the world. And we were saying, oh, are there other blockchains that would let us run a validator node? So we went to Harmony, for instance, and they were like, yeah, yeah, you can. And then so they accepted our, our, our but then they then later in talking to them, we're like, no, it costs one point five million dollars to run a, one of our validation nodes. And it was just like, oh, God, you know, like, why? Why on earth? Um, yeah. So we, we've kind of just gotten off that boat now and just said you can create local systems. And now the size of those systems, right, can they fit on, you know, uh, three, let's say you only have three nodes in a village right, off-grid, and they're on little Nook servers, right, running on a solar panel. Can those, if they get occasional internet, link together, right, and and create larger networks around each other, right? So that's the fun now. And, and there's, the sky's the limit. There's so, many, there's so much cool tech coming around this. And doing it from the grassroots, like, you know, from the bottom up is, it just seems like the right thing to do. I, I, I love like this idea. I love this idea. The nodes on the solar power in a village. I think it's a it's a great image. So, do you think that's do you think that's the future again? Like, do you think that's the you know many thousands of different blockchains interconnected? This is the natural outcome of where we're heading, or do you think it's going to be different? Or you know what's going to be important? Because this yeah. recurring theme that we talked about here is for me at least a lot about the not just decentralizing of tech but decentralization of power right this is you can decentralize the tech but if you keep centralizing the power it is really ending up being the same right so what do we believe we're going to end up or not and what the risk about it and what do you think we can do to make sure we end up in a good place yeah i mean a lot of these like these nodes that are in a village like eventually um will have nodes that fit on a very small device or like a phone or i mean i've even seen some arduino chips and stuff like this nowadays that can run on little tiny so just you know that can get smaller and smaller and smaller until like tim you've got your own ledger there you've got a protocol on your phone or whatever your device is and you've got a protocol that connects out to these you know 
other networks. And I mean, I, you know, Holochain is a lot like that. It, it doesn't yet work on a phone yet, but uh, so there's a lot of, you know, push toward that kind of really, really, you know, small, personal, private, even ledgers that, and then you choose to share with this network, right? And so, you know, decentralizing all these choke points. So if you just think about all the, the choke points that sort of centralize uh, power in different ways, blockchains kind of do that uh, in a way too. And so like getting away from everyone using Ethereum and that's kind of gave birth to a lot of these layer two guys you know, layer threes happening and saying, okay, well, we can all link together and maybe we can connect to Harmony, right? We can roll up to Harmony or something like this as a security measure, they can roll up to Ethereum. So, you know, that decentralization um, is kind of happening right now. And I think that's exciting. And and then like in terms of the sensor proofness, if we can, you know, allow and utilize currencies that are created by communities you know, it, it really just does open doors from they can be sustainable themselves and choose to connect with who they want to choose to connect with. And I think that's just, it puts them on a sovereign playing field that we all have the basic rights and that this is a human right to create your own credit system. I think we just need to acknowledge that you can't force people, you shouldn't force people to use a national currency either, right? That should be, you know, that should be against the human rights that should be the UN should basically say that subjugating people into using one currency as a country has got to be illegal right just like you wouldn't force people to you know use one toilet or anything like that i mean it's just you know like there, there's a lot of systems love where it. you can still do taxation if you want there's still all kinds of ways to do that i mean we use demurrage for instance is so negative interest rates so the money decays or it's called the gessel tax as well and goes back to the community um so a lot of systems like that are powerful in terms of making sure that we have devices that are i mean it, it just pops in my head all the time is that you know, we're getting these little android phones mostly from china and you know so being able to like create technology that's you know environmentally sound and can be localized more so i i don't know if we'll ever get there uh, but that's a big thing as well um i mean ideally as we get down and down to lower you know cheaper and cheaper devices that becomes kind of less of an issue um but yeah, I just, you know, this world where we, we, you know, accept that people have a right to organize and, you know, create financial instruments and create sustainable local economies. I think that's just an important piece. And the, the concept of a commons, you know, like an economic commons, where that commons defines instruments that they use. Those instruments can be, we usually use the term voucher. A voucher is a bilateral agreement, right? Versus a token, it can just be information-based. And uh, versus swaps, which are you know multilateral, like uh, profit sharing agreements and things like this, or resource sharing. So, and members have rights and responsibilities, and those are you know legal agreements. So, like a like you can you have the Paris Agreement or an open source license where people can agree to these things and can be held accountable to them. I think that space is really important. The legal space, you know, that we create in terms of governance around financial instruments and economic commons is important and you know right now it's just sort of like free for all like there's nothing there's there's really very little responsibility in the in the token world and everyone would want no one even questions the idea that you you should get a bunch of ladies in a village you know dependent on your token as a medium of exchange no one even you know what i mean like that's the kool-aid everyone's sort of in right now it's just like oh yeah you know like because of bitcoin because of all this stuff um yeah let me ask you uh, final one final question um, because we're about an hour in and you know 
we, we could and we likely will keep on talking for a long time, um, maybe not today. So you said this earlier, you know, in the beginning of the talk, you said um, you when you moved to Kenya, um, you know, you had this sensation while people in the States were really worried. Now um, you were getting there and you said, you know, it, it kind of radiated this idea of we will be OK, you know, we'll be OK. So that's the question for you. Will we be OK? Yeah, totally. I think people just literally like I, I think a good percentage of our problem is constant fear and worry. And as long as you're in that mindset, you can't even find solutions. You know, you're literally like your solution is to destroy and hide and get guns. And you know what I mean? Like it's it's destructive. Right. And so like the solution space, like moving people into solution space means relaxing a bit, you know, and look, I, I, we all might die in the next, you know, 10 years or something like this. Like what? You might fall on your head tomorrow and die. Like, you know, take a deep breath. Take a deep Just, breath. Will, Will yeah. Riddick, thank you so much. This was a pleasure, like always. Cheers, Tim. Thanks for having me. Hello again. Yes, it's me, Tim. If you made it through the entire recording, this podcast, you might want to subscribe and stay tuned. Over the coming three months, I will be likely releasing about two, pa um, two podcasts per week. Um, focus, obviously, Web3 builders and DAOs and how they can transform our lives. If you have any feedback, questions, or want to suggest a guest that I should interview, simply look me up on Telegram or go to my homepage. Um, very easy, delhas.com, D-E-L-H-A-E-S.com. So see ya and thanks for tuning in.